0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered
0: by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
1: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He is the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion today is not tied to the Office of Investment Products views our guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. Really, we couldn't have a more exciting show for you today. We've got two of the world's leading economists, most respected economists on the future of the U.S. economy and innovation. One contends progress will be slow and incremental. The other, that the future is bright. Uh, These two economists, Robert Gordon, Joe Moker, both professors of economics at Northwestern University. we are going to be talking with them for the full hour on their outlooks. Uh, But before we turn to them, uh, Professor Siegel, I know you want to comment on the markets here, the the uh, all the data that we're getting in here. Maybe just give us a, a little bit of brief market commentary before we turn to the economic discussion with uh, Jim. Yeah, I mean,
2: so much is going on. It's hard to know. Well, we have the Dow Jones at an all-time high, the S&P at an all-time high, uh, all the averages, the NASDAQ is just a little off. Uh, if you want a broader picture of what I think has happened over the years, I do think that the rally in stocks... Uh, and the sell-off in bonds, was a Trump phenomenon in November, December, January, and February. But as the Trump agenda has stalled, what kept the market up was very good earnings in the first quarter. We had the best earnings in the first quarter that we had in three or four years, and actually the best guidance for the year. And that's actually borne out by the data because the estimates of full-year earnings are about the best that I have seen Uh, It usually goes down over the year because uh, usually the analysts are overly optimistic. This has been one of the lowest declines that I've seen. So that has taken it off. Also, of course, lower interest rates. Who would expect the 10-year to be 231? Actually, as you know, this morning with the low CPI and the low retail sales, it actually broke below 230. uh, We didn't think it was going to be 231. Uh, The Dow is off a half a percent on on these numbers. Uh, The dollar has been soft. This is very good for S&P. Uh, you know, 40% of their profits are international, and uh, they gain by a declining dollar. So basically, we've had a certain things have taken over for the decline that we've seen in the the, the the promise of of the Trump agenda. So that is what kept markets up, and uh, uh, I, I think that's why. What we're just beginning here, of course, with the quarter two earnings, we're right at the beginning of earnings seasons. We had four banks announced all beat their estimates and all went down. And in fact, the financial sector is by far the weakest today. Why is that? Because interest rates are down, and uh, they need higher interest rates. And they also gave some cautious guidance. Some of them were a little bit upset that we didn't have more deregulation. Was actually a statement about what what's happening to the Trump agenda, rather than uh, actually thinking that the uh, economy uh, was going to sink. Uh, also, we've had a lot of talk. We saw Janet Yellen might be her very last, what we call Humphrey Hawkins, appearance before Congress. This occurs every July and February. Her term is up in February. We don't know who it's going to be. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of talk this earlier this week about Gary Cohn, uh, National Economic Council, close uh, advisor to um, uh, President Trump. Uh, being his first choice if he wants it. Uh, His name was never in the hopper before, but the the word is that they have developed a very close relationship. Now, this would be quite a surprise. Uh, I still have a hard time trying to see a Goldman Sachs CEO being head of the uh, Federal Reserve, and I I do want to check in on on our guests on if they have any thoughts on what they can be. But it's getting to be time when he's going to have to announce as a... Her term is up, and she might, he might reappoint her. There's still – and then the odds are – a lot of people still think that's a, a, a strong thing. Uh, but uh, clearly by the fall, the late fall, he will have to pick who is going to uh, succeed uh, Jannie Allen.
1: Yeah, so maybe we should just get ready for our our economic discussion here. Um, So let me just introduce our guests a little bit more formally here, Um, Robert Gordon and Joel Moker. They both have written extensively about the economy over the long term. Uh, I know one of the books that uh, Professor Siegel talks about a lot in his presentations and just on what books has influenced his thinking on the economy, Uh, Robert Gordon's book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, the U.S. Standard of Living Since the Civil War uh, has won numerous prizes, awards for one of the best books last year. Uh, and I know it's definitely influenced a professor, which is a, a pretty big statement there. And uh, Joel Moker, he has written extensively uh, about the economy for the last, uh, you go back if you just search Moker books, you'll see the last three decades, tons of books on technology uh, and how the impact, what Drove technology. What drove economic growth? His latest book is "A Culture of Growth," uh, just published last year by Princeton University. So he's also one of the, the most written authors on the economy. So we're really looking forward to hearing this bull bear a professor. I know you always get on a bull bear debate yeah. on the markets. Let Here we let have. Me,
2: let me say a few words on 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 this. Uh, 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 by the way, I, I read both Robert and um, Joel's a wonderful discussion uh, before the Chicago Council and global affairs that took place uh late last october and reported uh, very well just uh anyone can uh, uh certainly google it and, and find that kayla stoner did a very very good summary both uh, ver- verbal and um and written down of that and i discovered that they are close friends even though they have opposite vo- viewpoints and of course i couldn't help but think of uh my my own close friend bob shiller and I, who have opposite viewpoints on where the stock market is going and have had for many years, and have been in many debates uh, actually just uh, 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 one that was uh, uh, late in April at um, the cFA society uh, an, annual meeting in uh, in Philadelphia on uh, which way the stock market 's going so uh, the sort of these odd couples come up every so often, and it 's really fun it 's really i think fun to find. Two friends that can remain friends even though they disagree about the fundamental output. Um, Robert, are you there? Yes, I am. Yeah, and you—you you, did you get—you got your Ph.D. from MIT? Was it in '67? Yes,
0: I. That's right.
2: Yeah, that was the year I came. So I—I—I I, I, I have a glimmer that you were leaving at that time, uh, and that was the year I met Bob Shore and. As we all know, that's 50 years ago now. It's hard to believe. Um, uh, 1967. Um, so um, what I thought we would do, um, um, although we are familiar with with your work, that each of you give a, a, a five,
3: six-minute
2: just summary of your positions for our audience, and um, then we will launch right into a Q&A session. Um, so... Uh, Why don't we start with you, Bob? Let me do say, I mean, uh, Jeremy Jeremy Schwartz did mention um, there there are few books that move the needle in my head. Maybe I think I just know everything and, uh, you know, dismiss too much. But uh, your book, I I think, The Rise and fall. and I was uh, a skeptic. I'm I'm basically an optimist. I still think I'm somewhat in in Joel's uh, camp on being an optimist on technology. But uh, there's no question that reading your book moved my needle. Uh, not all the way, I think, but certainly move the needle and i think uh, I think it 's an absolutely great book, no one should be scared of it. It is eight hundred some pages, uh, but nonetheless, it is a very uh, readable uh, a readable book so uh, uh, Bob, give us a few minutes of summary on, on what what your main positions are.
0: Well, <clears throat> we need to look back and get some perspective on u s economic growth. We keep hearing uh, that uh, according to the president, uh, we're just about to break out of a, a period of seven years when we've been on a 2% growth path and get up instantly and effortlessly to 3 or 4%. Uh, so let me give you some numbers in that context of 2% or 4%. For a century, from 1870 to 1970, the U.S. economy grew at close to 4%. Uh, that was a period propelled by what I call the great inventions, Electricity, the internal combustion engine, electricity made possible. Um, Electric light, machines, elevators, subways, the whole urban density that created productivity. As we moved off the farm, uh, the internal combustion engine gave us motor transport and air transport. We had a revolution in speed. We had a revolution in temperature as central heating and air conditioning. Uh, came in, a revolution in infant mortality and life expectancy. All those things happened in a very compressed uh, period, Uh, primarily not for the whole period of 1870 to 1970, but remarkable changes happened just between 1890 and uh, 1930. Uh, So then after 1970, after that remarkable century, growth slowed down from around 4% to close to 3%. And much of that was a decline in productivity growth. In my view, it was because the primary effects of the great inventions had pretty much run their course. Growth didn't fall off as much as productivity did because we had very rapid growth in the labor force in the 1970s, 80s, and 1990s. Not only because of the baby boom teenagers who came into the labor force in the 1970s, but also because that period in the late 20th century was that main. Um, period uh, of women entering the labor force, um, going from homework to market work. Now, after 2006, we, we grew about 3% from 1970 to 2006. And in the decade since 2006, we have not grown at 2%. We've only grown at 1.3%. And you say, well, how come? That's because this 2% growth path we've been on is from the depths of the recession. It's a period when we've been using up the labor supply made possible by unemployment falling from 10% to 4.5% as it is now. So our growth path over the last decade has only been 1.3%, well under half of what it was over the previous um, 35 years. You're talking years.
2: about the total real GDP. This is not a productivity number. That, that's our, right. Our, our,
0: so yeah. this is... Total real GDP grew only at 1.3% since 2006. And if we look at why that big slowdown occurred, it's about half in hours of work. Um, Part of that is baby uh, boom people are retiring and slowing down the growth in the labor force as they move out of the labor force. Uh, We've also had a um, substantial decline in the labor force participation of prime-age men and women. Uh, You know, comparing... Twenty of the developed countries, the United States ranks second from the bottom in male labor force participation of prime-age people, and third from the bottom in female participation. We could talk later on about why. But this decline in the growth of labor input is half of the story of slower GDP growth, and the rest of the story is slower productivity growth. Now, in my view, the big reason why productivity growth has slowed down so much in the last uh, 10 to 15 years is because the, the computer revolution, as powerful as it was in moving business methods and procedures away from paper and calculating machines and typewriters to flat screens and the Internet and software programs with spreadsheets and word processing, as powerful as that was, the main impact of it on productivity occurred in the late 1990s and first part of the decade of the 2000s. By 10 years ago, the American office was pretty much set up the way it is now, with reliance on desktop and laptop uh, computers. We can talk later about the smartphone and what difference it's made. But in my view, we've had, in much of the economy, education, healthcare, retail trade, um, much of office work, we have, are basically operating at the same methods that we did uh, ten years ago, and that's the fundamental underpinning of why productivity growth has slowed down so much. So I'll I'll stop there as, uh, just with this background, and then we can delve into any of these points. As
2: we I, I, I I do we, uh, you know, remember? I mean, I was growing up in the '50s. You were, and we compare the kitchen today of the kitchen of of, of the '50s microwave,
0: Yeah,
2: but the microwave is about the only thing that's different. But if you go back 50 years before that, my God, uh, you know, I mean, refrigeration, indoor plumbing, electricity. I mean, the, the changes were were absolutely uh, dramatic. Um, so uh, yeah, let's, um, Joel. Uh, and by the way, your, your book, Culture of Growth, which uh, consists, I guess, of a number of some of them on lectures, but Talking about how important that is uh, to productivity, uh, you, you remain optimistic that we're going to break out of this very slow productivity growth. And by the way, I've been talking about that on our show uh, for several years, that uh, the productivity growth has just been unbelievably low, especially for a period of declining energy and a period of economic uh, cyclical economic expansion from the depths of the um, of the Great Recession. Normally, uh, those two factors would accelerate it above there, and yet we've uh, gone way below there, and we're all scratching our heads. Why has it been so, you know, deplorable? Um, so, Joe, why don't you, uh, you know, get your two cents in if we if we can play?
3: Yes. Well, thank you. Um... I just wanted to add to your introduction that not only that Bob and I have remained good friends despite our disagreement, but that I actually was the editor in chief of the uh, series in which he published his books at with Princeton University ah. Press. And <laughs> in fact, I, I I still pride myself at being one of the sort of instigators or you know stimulants for him completing the damn book. So um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm, you know, I'm very proud of because you know, Bob was the one that told me to write
2: stocks for the long run. There uh, I've written a couple of academic articles. Oh. He said, Jeremy, you know, turn this into a book. Uh, he's written many, many more books than I have. I find it more of, much more of an effort, let me tell you. But uh, it was interesting that Bob, Bob was a major force in, in getting me to write that. So there are some, so many very interesting parallels
3: between you two yeah. and, and Bob, Bob and me. Yes. Yeah, so he and I have disagreed about this, about this view of where technology is going, but... I think his book is a tour de force in as an as an essay in in economic history, but but I want to say something about you know I'm I've been an economic historian all my life, but I'm going to say something that sort of cuts off the branch in which I'm sitting, which is I think the past, you know, is 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 not a terribly good guide to the future. And my culture of growth really is about the period between sort of 1500 to 1700, and it doesn't make any it doesn't say anything about about the future. And so I'm going to be very careful about drawing uh, inferences from history, largely because I think what's happened in the in the 19th and 20th century is that that uh, you know economic growth has undergone some kind of phase transition in which it's not just that it's accelerating, but the entire set of parameters that determines its dynamic path have changed. We're in a different world, and we're in a world in which technology is is driven by. Very different factors. And so let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I think until about 1700, basically what we would call science, okay, what, what, what people investigate in an informal way than the world around them, had very little impact on, on, on the way we, we make things. You know, technology and science were essentially disjoint. And then what you see happening very slowly at first and then at an ever faster rate is that science begins to inform technology. And, you know, it's 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 unthinkable that somebody would today design and say something like a nuclear reactor sort of by accident or serendipitously the way things were, were being discovered before. And so that, of course, raises the question is what's driving science? And that's basically this main source of my optimism, because the way I see the interaction between what I call propositional knowledge, which is knowledge about the world, and prescriptive knowledge, which is how we make things. Uh, this is a two-way street, and it's terribly important to, to understand that not only that science drives technology, but also that technology drives science. And, you know, this actually can be traced back to the 17th century when you look at the great scientific revolution, and you have to realize that what was in large part driving that was new tools and instruments that, have, that became available to people investigating nature. So we think about the microscope, we think about the telescope, we think about the barometer, vacuum pump, a whole bunch of things that were basically made by artisans who weren't scientists themselves but then were used by scientists and that sort of feeds back into technology because you can't imagine how a, say, something like a steam engine would come about unless you understood that people uh, uh, came to grips with the fact that, uh, that something like a vacuum was possible, that kind of stuff. Now if you think that that is a good model and you transplant it to our own age. You start realizing that scientists today have at their disposal a set of tools that are so much more powerful than anything we ever dreamed about in the past that the entire system has changed dramatically. And you know that is something that 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 that, that, that basically just a, a small glance at a few, you know, exceptions in The Economist or Scientific anything will sort of illustrate that to no end. I mean, we have tools. It's not just that we have microscopes and telescopes that are vastly more powerful that allow us to do sort of nanoscopic research, but we have tools that nobody even dreamed about in the past, including, of course, lasers and powerful computers that allow us to do things like computational biology and computational physics. So that part of what's driving technology is so much more powerful today than even it was than it was even twenty five years ago, that I can't see how this is not going to result in a rapid acceleration of technological progress. And so if you buy that story then you should ask well why doesn't don't the T F P statistics show that? And I have two remarks about I have about that. One of this I think we should sort of Loosen, liberate ourselves from our, sort of, uh, our TFP fetishism, you know, we sort of get totally the TFP. Hung up
2: for our TFP. Total factor productivity, which is really the, the, the core kernel the of property. productivity growth, which, of it course, is the sets the standard of living and uh, the real wage. Oh, it is the most important long-run
3: well, variable probably we have, yeah. Except that there are sort of two things that are wrong with it. And nobody knows it better than than my esteemed colleague Robert J. Gordon. And that is that, you know, A, TFP and technological progress are not interchangeable. We can have a lot of technological progress without it showing up in, in, in productivity, you know making things that don't enter the national account for one reason or another. And secondly, of course, we can have it, an acceleration or a decline in productivity that have nothing to do with... Uh, technological progress, but have to do with other things such as, for instance, the dynamics of competition within the economy, the, uh, the efficiency by which resources are being allocated, and on and on and on. And there is growing evidence that the slowdown in total factor productivity in the last 10, 15 years that Bob so meticulously documents, aren't so much caused by a slowdown in technological progress as much as in the fact that, you know, fewer firms are being born new, uh, and, and fewer firms are entering the industry and more firms are dying. So the entire competitiveness of the American uh, capitalist system uh, uh, is declining. So I'm not that hung up on total factor productivity because I think technological progress can be measured in different ways. For instance, the rate of Patenting, which is also a very flawed measure I should add, has been uh, keeping uh, up at you know very very strong levels. We keep patenting as much as we did before now you know that that doesn't necessarily tell me all that much either, but it just tells you that me you know, we have many flawed measures of technological progress, and none of them is perfect and just to hang everything on one of them strikes me as as dangerous so okay i' I'm, I'm, I'm going to let, let, let me
2: pause over here. I, I'm going to get to Bob's response to that. Um, let me say that in, in my book, Socks for the Long Run, I do also talk about some long-run effects. And, and one thing that I saw as stimulating periods of growth was breakthroughs in communication. Uh, you know, in the invention paper, of uh, paper, second century China. Then, of course, the printing press uh, that we, uh, you know, Gutenberg's printing press, and uh, then I thought, my goodness, the biggest one, uh, well, there was a telephone, but now the Internet world. Putting people in communication, you can now get the base knowledge. Anyone can get the base knowledge, and now we have 6 billion people that could access the world's information and build on top of that. I want to ask you, Joel, do you think that that communication Ability could be a powerful future stimulant to,
3: I, to uh, productivity I uh, Not only and think that, but I have said so in the past repeatedly. Uh, and, and again, let me draw from a historical analogy. And that is, you look at the 18th century, which is basically when this whole, all began. One of the things that really strikes you is that the 18th century invented the search engine. Uh, now their search engine weren't nearly as powerful as ours, but they invented the encyclopedia. In fact, the mm, sort of the Diderot yeah. and D'Alembert great encyclopedia is sort of often thought of, it, sort of as the paradigmatic, you know, uh, uh, publication of the Enlightenment movement, and it basically allowed you to access best practice knowledge by looking at things al- alphabetically. And this is just one example there. Endless little sort of technical books with good indexes. That actually drove to a great extent what came after. But that stuff, much like you know Galileo's telescope, uh, is very different from the Hubble. Uh, <coughs> I think I think the encyclopaedia compares to what we have today, which is the internet, in which basically the entire set of knowledge of the human race is being made increasingly available. Everybody, and we're not just talking about you know Wikipedia, we're talking about access to the union of all the scientific journals and magazines that exist in libraries. Now, this is mind boggling, but what it really tells you is that if innovation results to a great extent from recombining pieces of knowledge that hitherto were disjoint, then this is the key to further progress because yes. well, I want to aim- I
2: want to get you know before we are going to have to take a break in a few minutes but I want to get Bob's response to that the potential of the internet the pooling of information um and, and for, of course, the fact is that no one has bought an encyclopedia <laughs> over the last five years used to be the wonderful graduation gift, wedding gift or whatever encyclopedia Britannica or whatever. Now of course, we all use a Wikipedia um, i mean and and it's costless but how 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 do you respond to that? How would you respond well let me to let me step
0: back a minute and talk about the possibility that we're not measuring things correctly. Uh, it, it has always been true that the economy generates enormous benefits and welfare um, in ways that are not included in gdp in the measure of our production uh, think of the enormous benefit of the transition from the horse to the motor car the cleanliness of the streets that came with that uh... think of the um, security a mother would have without worrying that there was a chance her newborn baby would die within the first year. Think of the cure of infectious diseases that happen. All of those benefits to humankind that occurred back in the early part of the 20th century were not included in GDP either. So when we look at today's inventions, and particularly the smartphone, the tablet, and all their offshoots and apps, um, we're getting great benefits from them as well. Um, But they're not included in GDP, and much of the social networking and game playing that the smartphone makes possible um, is not making business firms capable of producing more or paying higher wages. It's not in GDP for a good reason. As for the uh, potential of um, free and costless information, of moving from heavy print encyclopedias to Wikipedia, um, I think that's all part of the revolution that uh, reached its peak in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Wikipedia was invented in 2001. Um, So what I see is um, the benefits of the Internet have been around now Uh, for around 20 years. uh, Windows 95 was, uh, of course, uh, introduced in 1995, and that's 22 years ago. Um, So it's not as if we, we suddenly have new tools today that are going to create light years of progress tomorrow. We've had great tools for 20 years, and many of the benefits of them have already flowed into the discovery of but the internet.
2: The penetration of the Internet, especially internationally. Uh, we, we know with the opening up of China, India, You know, we're, we're talking about population in, 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 in the billions when anyone there can say, gee, I wonder if anyone thought about this particular problem, just punch it on the Internet and, you know, you have brain power working. Now, yes, that was invented 20 years ago, but I would say in the last five years, we've really had the spread of this, particularly internationally, um, and where brain power could be applied on an international basis to some of the toughest problems in the world.
1: Professor, let me ask that we take a quick break here and then we're going to come back, continue this conversation. We had a pretty good introduction to the ideas on both sides from Joel and from from Bob. Let's come back to this conversation. You're, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We have to take a short break. We'll continue the conversation with these two gentlemen, two economic uh, historians here on the future of growth of the economy. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break.
0: You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.
1: Welcome back. This is Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We have a great show here. The second half hour, we're going to continue the conversation with Bob Gordon, Joel Moker, Professor Siegel on the future of the U.S. economy. In the first part of the show, we talked about uh, the two outlines, uh, the, the bullish, the bearish case on the economy. Um, Bob Gordon talked about how the computers, uh, the benefits of the internet have been sort of tapped out. We saw the benefits of the productivity in the 90s, 2000s, and perhaps that that's not as, as exciting anymore. Joel Moker is, is giving a little bit more optimistic case on the fruits of science and technology converging together and really giving us a runway that we haven't seen before. And one of the big questions and worries is, with some of the latest technology, and always there's labor-saving technologies, but some people, as they talk about this AI um, and the sort of the future of the robot technologies, is that going to replace the need for labor? And what is, you know, you're you're both, as you think about the future, is that one of those productivity issues? Uh, how, how do you think about that? Uh, maybe we start with, with Professor Moker on that.
3: Well, it, 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 that that debate has always sort of made me smile a little bit because, you know, if you look at, at, at what – there are sort of two kinds of techno-pessimists, right? There are the ones like like Bob and others who basically say, ah, the best, is, the best is behind us, and from now on it's going to be slow going. And then there's the other techno-pessimists who say, oh, no, this is going to accelerate and it's going to destroy us. You know, it's going to destroy people. It's going to destroy jobs. It's going to make us all the slaves of these, of these supercomputers. And, you know, you wonder, you know, they can't both be right, you know. (laughs) Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I I think the problem that you are underlining has been around for basically 200 years. In 1821, you know, Ricardo wrote a famous letter to McCulloch in which he basically said, ah, the way labor-saving technology, he didn't use that term, but that's what he has in mind, it has been going, very soon nobody will be working. Well, that was 200 years ago. People are still working um, I think the nature of work will change and uh, machines will replace uh, more and more arduous, routinized, boring work of, and um, make us and, and and make and liberate us as as Keynes put it from the Adamite curse that in the sweat of thy brows thou shalt eat bread, right? I mean uh, we may in the limit, and I don't think we're there even remotely, but we may in the limit reach a situation where the only people who will work are people who want to work. Now, that, I, that, that uh, no economist in his right mind would not think of that as being an improvement, uh, be anything but an improvement, uh, um, because we teach in economics that, you know, work is, is something do, 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 are you we, you do,
2: do you think the participation rate will decline further?
3: I, that, you know, that, I do you think, think that I'm not totally sure that more the participation more
2: than demographic, rate, demographic. It's just that people will have enough of what they want, and their trade-off between leisure and work I will think, move in the direction of less hours. Now there has been that trend. I'm as we really know, sure. I mean, there used to be sixty-hour work weeks. Actually, most of it went down to, as, as Bob himself, I think, talked about it, yeah, but you know, uh, you know, many decades ago, down to the forty-hour the or thirty-five-hour work week this way. that we, we have now. Do you, do you think that there is a possibility that will decline even further?
3: I think it might well decline, but I think what you will see if the participation rate declines is an increase in volunteer work, which is already a very large sector of the economy, people who do work because they, get, they, they feel good about it and they want to do it, and it gives them a chance of participating in society and meet people and all the other sort of benefits uh, of work. That, I think, you will see. Um, and then, of course, the big issue becomes how do we actually pay people some kind of citizen's wage? Uh, and that's that's an issue about about distribution that everybody's sort of scratching their head over and i don't have an immediate answer to that but i I, w- I want bob's response to the techno pessimism
2: of uh i mean is this going to put uh, a lot of people out of work that do still want to work uh if we get an acceleration in ai artificial intelligence robotics uh et cetera bob what what's your view on, on that
0: well i I like to start from a <clears throat> from a paper that was uh, written in 2013 by two economists from oxford england who predicted that in the next twenty years forty seven percent of the jobs would be eliminated um, and we're now four or five years into their twenty years and nothing that they predicted has happened yet uh... let's look at some of the job categories that they uh, suggest will be uh, greatly reduced uh... they predicted that over the next twenty years that 55% of the jobs of airline pilots would be replaced. Well, we see no move whatsoever by the federal regulators to allow commercial airlines to be flown with one pilot instead of two. Uh, they suggested that 86% of the real estate agents' uh, jobs would be eliminated, but we still see humans involved in virtually every real estate transaction. They said that 92% of the jobs were retail clerks, Uh, would be eliminated. Yes, we are moving toward e-commerce, but so far, as of last year, e-commerce only made up 8% of retail trade. So there is a long way to go before all the jobs of those who work in the retail sector are are eliminated. Uh, So as you mentioned, there are techno-optimists and techno-pessimists. I always like to reassure my audiences when I come up with the story of slow uh, growth that I expect to continue in the future, that this is good news for jobs because what we've seen in the last uh, eight years, the creation of 16 million new jobs, is not a fluke. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed.
2: Mm. Now, let me say I make the point, and this is uh, a real broad historical point, so maybe Joel will appreciate it. I mean, mankind for its first 99% of existence used to spend all time just hunting for food. Survival was it. There was no free time. Uh, now, in at least in the developed world, you could get the minimum to survive working less than one hour, um, and that's been documented. And yet, the average person still works for eight because it, he want he or she. Wants to enjoy their leisure time and and, and have cars and 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 other uh, gadgets and uh, that uh, and eat food that's far above just minimum nutrition, but that gives them pleasure. So throughout history, we have gone from probably needing to work you know 10 to 12 hours a day just to survive, to having to work one hour, and yet everyone basically. That wants to work still has a job. I think, actually, what? on the on the job front, this is, uh, as as uh, I, I hear both you and and, uh, and uh, Joel, we're we're actually all on the same page mm-hmm. that Mike, uh, technological progress and productivity do not, in the long run, uh, necessarily mean that that there'll, there'll be people that'll just be unemployed, starving, and searching for jobs. Um, let, me, but let me. I want just to point out, up, Bob, on, on, on what you say. You do have uh, a somewhat pessimistic prediction for productivity in the future, um, and it is, you know, source of standard of living. Uh, just to give you a, a couple of summary statistics for our audience, non-farm productivity, which comes out every quarter after the GDP and the hours gets out, uh, has averaged a little bit above two percent per year in the post-World War II period. Um, it's basically averaged just about zero or half a percent in this expansion. Again, shocking in an expansion and shocking in a period of declining energy prices that we've had over the last seven or eight years. So really, uh, corrected for those two, it's even been worse. Bob, what is your long-run prediction of uh, the uh, productivity growth um, and, and, and the, the standard of living of uh, the average American or person in developed countries. Well,
0: I'm glad you made that distinction between productivity growth and the standard of living uh, because, um, in contrast to the um, very slow rates that you just mentioned of productivity growth of only half a percent a year over the last seven or eight years, um, I predict that over the next 25 years that will. A uh, speed up to one point two percent, roughly mm-hmm. as fast as it's been in the last seven or eight but years.
2: But still, quite a bit but that below does not mean post-war. Wait, wait.
0: But that does not mean that um, our standard of living is going to grow uh, as rapidly as one point two percent a year. For two main reasons. The first reason is that we have uh, the decline in the labor force that I mentioned before, with the retirement of the baby boomers and the uh, declining uh, participation of prime-age men and women, Um, and this cuts the 1.2% in the future down to 0.8%. So the next next question is, will the median person, the middle person in society, um, have a standard of living that's growing as fast as that um, average of 0.8? And there we get into the interesting question, which we have not yet mentioned, of rising inequality and the fact that the people with the good jobs at the top are getting much faster increases in income than the people uh, down at the bottom. Um, If inequality were to um, continue to concentrate income at the top at the same rate as the last 30 years, then the median person would see a growth in income not of 0.8% a year in the future, but only half that. So a big question is whether Income inequality will continue to get worse. If you just look at the census figures on median versus mean income, median is the person in the middle, whereas the mean or average includes all the income of the people at the top. Uh, that difference between median and mean income has continued to grow at about 0.4% a year, even over the last decade. So uh, things don't look good for the growth in the standard of living. And that doesn't even mention the Ominous future of the federal debt, Social Security running out of money, and how we're going to pay for a future of an aging population.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, and, and and by the way, you know, there's that standard uh, little formula that we economists use. Uh, you divide uh, the growth rate uh, of any variable into uh, 72, and you get what's called doubling time. Yeah uh you know with it, with productivity growth let's say historical of two two and a half we'd get like thirty years every thirty years uh thirty five years maybe the standard uh, of productivity would double standard living would double if that also uh, you know permeated the whole population um, uh, if you're talking about zero point four percent a year you know we we're, we're talking about three hundred years so instead of a generation to a generation and a half to make you better off. And you know, we're talking, you know, in terms of centuries. This this is quite- Well we we already have
0: a lot of evidence that uh today's young people in many ways are not as well off as their parents. That's particularly true for those with a high school education or less. Uh, their wages haven't gone up in real terms for thirty years. Uh, there is much less of the stable union job with defined benefit pensions has been replaced by unstable work, a lack of benefits, a lack of health care. Uh so there's a substantial part of the population, particularly youth, young people uh, starting out who don't have a college education, um, who are already not as well off as their parents. So
2: read- do you wanna
3: respond to Bob's Bob's points here? Yeah, let me let me let me make a rather fundamental point about how we do our national income accounting and that is it just won't wash to say that economic growth will be slowed down because of you know, people dropping out of the labor force, people retiring and so on. Uh, that takes advantage of the fact that we actually don't count leisure as part of our national income accounts. And so if you're not working because you don't want to work, uh, I and mean, therefore the national income goes down, that's bad. But of course it isn't bad because we all understand that leisure itself – is a desirable thing. Now add to that the fact that today's retired people stay, you know, thanks to artificial hips and artificial knees and pacemakers and and, and, and whatnot, they're spending spending their time on the on the golf course or travelling through European museums or having fun, as opposed to people 40, 50 years ago who spent this time on on wheelchairs. So none of that gets counted as part of the improvement in welfare. Now The other thing, of course, is that it's not so obvious that these people aren't going to work. I refer both of you to a survey essay that was published last week in The Economist in which they basically point out that – that we may be looking at a large proportion of population, particularly people in the 65 to 74 age bracket, who are basically fit to work, want to work, and there is no reason why they shouldn't work unless if only we can change the institutions of society that have been systematically discriminated against them. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. If these people work, then growth will actually be faster than it used to be, and because they're joining the labor force and the economists... Actually, compare that to the huge boost in national income that we received from women joining the labor force uh, after World War II. If they're not working, then they're better off uh, by choosing not to work, and and they're enjoying their leisure. Uh, So living standards aren't just what goes into GDP. And even the younger people who, according to Bob, are so much worse off than their parents. You know, it, it's not obvious that if you measured it correctly that that would be the case. Their parents did not have all of the information of the world, and you know, in, 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 in a little box that the people buy at the Apple store. And people are actually not buying cars, not because they can't afford them. They don't want to have cars, okay, because they can use Uber. They don't buy houses. Uh, you know, they, they, they rent property. It's, you know, the things, technology has changed every aspect of our lives, and to measure things as if we're still in a wheat and steel economy uh, uh, strikes me as, as, as essentially uh, very misleading. Uh, living standards have been improving, I think, consistently. And just looking at real wage, uh, uh, you know, it worries me a great deal, as Bob well knows, that the deflator really isn't, is, is biased. Toward the kind of growth that we can measure and not the improvement in welfare that's actually taking place. Now, he's absolutely right. This thing happened in the past as well. But I think it is much more noticeable today than it was uh, ever before. It's moving at a faster speed. If you just think about a few things that we're all getting that we take for granted, that, that are now free and don't enter the national income accounts at all. Think about GPS, for instance, okay? So de- anybody can can get today into Google Maps and find their way. You don't have to buy maps. You don't have to, to ask people where you go. Every, it's just something that we take for granted. It's just happened the last five or ten years. You look at music, you know. The, the access to any kind of music you can imagine on sites like Spotify and Pandora and God knows how many others. And this stuff is either free or virtually free. All of those things enter into economic welfare, but because they're, they're not pe- being paid for directly by the consumer, they don't enter the national income accounts. And I think that is accelerating because the digital uh, economy allows us to, to essentially make these things uh, as, as cheap as possible. But here, I want to make one more point, and that is, Jeremy, you mean, the, you're absolutely right what you said about the internet, but I do want to point out that technological progress now and certainly in the next 10 or 15 years, is actually should sort of wean itself from this uh, digital economy fetishism. Uh, uh, Freeman Dyson wrote recently that if the 20th century was the age of physics the 21st century will be the age of biology and i think what is now more or less with us or above the horizon is our ability to manipulate living beings both plants and animals to a degree that you know charles darwin would not have dreamed about and these new techniques of uh, genetic editing will allow us to produce things uh, that will essentially create an entirely new world. Now, whether that world is going to be good or bad is a separate, uh, is a separate dispute. But that it's going to happen, that it is inevitable, uh, strikes me as a fact. And you know, we have now developed these, these CASBIS techniques that allow us essentially in, in 10 or 15 years to design Living beings according to our specifications.
1: Let me uh, let me just jump in here for a second. We have about six minutes left, and and uh, and I want to get to our sort of sort of closing final, you know, closing thoughts from you. Um, and we've talked a lot about just the outlook for the economies. Is there prescriptions that you think, um, you know, where do we need to, as a as a country, focus? Um, from a, there's a political angle in terms of what policies you think we need. But any sort of as we think about that five to six minute countdown, Professor Gordon, perhaps you could start with just any reactions and and closing thoughts. On, on the policy side?
0: On the policy side, uh, let's think about the starting point, which is the overall rate of economic growth. Um, we need to um, anticipate uh, the, the burden of paying for the older generation despite Joel's um, claims that the retired people are going to have all this time and ability to enjoy their leisure. They're not saving enough. Uh, they need money to enjoy all that leisure time, and they 're not saving up the money uh, so the uh, the future of uh, people retiring at age sixty five and living to age ninety or ninety five is fraught with uh, fiscal implications. We have to think about that. Um, the most direct solution for the burden of the aging population is more immigration. We currently admit into the United States legally about one-third of one percent of our population each year. In Canada, they admit a full percent of their population, three times as much relatively. Um, If we were to follow Canada with their point system, rewarding people for education, language ability, and job training, uh, we would be able to bring in more capable people, um, job creators, people who would start new business firms, So I would put at the top of my policy list a going totally in the opposite direction of President Trump on immigration. Another problem we have is that one reason that prime age male labor force participation is so low in the United States is that so many of our citizens are in prison. We have an incarceration rate. Uh, seven times higher than most advanced Western European countries. There are many people languishing in prison who should be let out, who are there for petty drug crimes, nonviolent crimes, or who are too old to be um, a threat to society. Uh, We have a massive vocabulary gap for five-year-olds coming into kindergarten between the poverty population and those in the middle and the upper middle class. We need to devote government resources to tutoring and education that goes down to age of six months, not just three or four years, and focus on the uh, poverty population if we want to have a society in the future that has more equality and less inequality. So those are just some of the places per, I would start.
1: Perfect. Let me let me that. get uh, get uh, Joel. to could just give us two minutes. We have less than uh, three minutes left. Uh, Joel, maybe you could give two minutes and give Professor one minute to close uh, so his thoughts.
3: I I agree with everything that Bob said, and I also agree with the fact that everything we currently doing goes against the current administration. I would add two more points. The first is that in order to remain competitive and in order to, to enjoy the fruits that science offers us, we have to be competitive with the rest of the world we have to have an open economy we should play the game of gl- globalization because it's the only game on this planet today and this sort of, all this talk about America first uh, strikes me as utterly uh, counterproductive The other thing that I would point to, is, and the administration is paying lip service to it but hasn't done anything, is that our infrastructure is woefully inadequate. And if people are worried about secular stagnation, people like Larry Summers, you know, basically go to New York and try to take the train this afternoon and see what, it, what our infrastructure really looks like. We need to invest heavily not only in the existing infrastructure but also to build a new one that is based on the decarbonization of the American energy sector, which I think basically needs to wean itself off fossil fuels in the next 15 or 20 years, it probably will. But a government policy that that pretends that if this is necessary, strikes me as utterly counterproductive. Let me get
1: Professor Siegel just to give us, we have about a minute left to to wrap up.
2: As you know, economists, yeah, I agree with so much on the immigration fund. I point out in my book You know, we're talking about, you know, the people retired, they're consumers but not producers. Everyone can't be, you know, retired half their life. And who are they going to depend on? Um, And I bring out how important trade is because outside of China, which instituted its one-child policy, the rest of the developing world is a very young world. I mean, India, you know, an average age 25, 30, Africa even lower. Uh, uh, if if they grow quickly in productivity, they're the, really the only source of of the providers, the producers. If we, we want to retire and be consumers, in as we're as we're growing older, and uh, pointing out some of the problems that that uh, Bob mentioned. So, and if if we you know isolate ourselves, uh, there's no way we can have a retirement period that people are dreaming of. You know, not, not living to ninety ninety five and you know, retiring at 62 when Social Security starts, that just Professor, we're out of
1: time. Um, What a great conversation. We had Bob Gordon, Joel Mokert, Professors of Economics at Northwestern, Professor Siegel. We'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Have a great week.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit
3: businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.